this is about eight years ago, that I thought I discovered a magnificent truth. At least it became apparent to me. It had to do with the first time that Barack Obama ran for office, and I watched what happened there. And I came upon this truth. Whoever controls the narrative controls the outcome. I've been teaching that to my Sunday school class for them to be aware of it for the last couple of weeks as we have been discussing particular issues from a biblical basis. But I saw this unfold when we had a candidate who who openly claimed he wanted to fundamentally transform America. And nobody asked what that meant. Then we had another candidate by the name of John McCain who ran an absolutely moribund campaign until he brought in a dynamic woman by the name of Sarah Palin. Now that couldn't be that, that this woman was going to change the flow of this thing. And so with the help of the media and Hollywood, there was this campaign to destroy her personally. And it worked. Made her look, out, look, look to be an absolute idiot. And McCain couldn't be dynamic in any way that was going to draw his people's attention. So we got caught up in what we called a historic election. And we were hopeful with that. We were hopeful with this historic election. I knew then, and I made the claim then, I claimed it for eight years, that our next president was going to be Hillary Clinton. Because it was going to be time for another historic election. Now it would be our first female president. And I saw how things went, and I knew, with the help of the media and with the help of, of uh, Hollywood and television, she was going to be exalted as the answer to all issues and all problems. I often said during that time frame, I often said to people, I believed if you watched her, how she conducted herself. She conducted herself as somebody who could not be touched. She knew, they can't touch me. You can't touch me. Because she knew everything that was in her camp and aligned for her benefit. And I was absolutely convinced she was going to be our next president. I did not believe until Friday after the election that maybe she had not won. I kept waiting to hear something that came up. So, oh, guess what? It was her after all. Who knew? But it literally took me three days to accept the fact it didn't go that way. Now, the principle is not a question. They lost control of the narrative. Whoever controls the narrative controls the outcome still, but they lost control of the narrative. They lost control of the narrative when two things. Nobody saw it coming. One, a guy by the name of Donald Trump wound up getting the nomination, and he was a counterpuncher. Anybody else prior to him who seemed to run a conservative ticket, they, they'd be insulted or, or something would, some, they'd be called out on something and they would shrivel up and wither and not know how to respond. And he just counterpunched. Nobody was expecting that. The other thing that happened is something called WikiLeaks. Who had a clue? That would reveal, yes, there really was a direct collusion between the media and that there were things that were going on behind the scenes that were obviously all set to put in place that she was going to be the nominee and she was going to win. They were just, all of that was happening that uh, some people had suspected, found out it was true. So it just confirmed to me this great truth that I came to understand eight years prior. Whoever controls the narrative controls the outcome. 
But things changed. And now, did you notice in this past election cycle, this whole topic of the narrative was forefront. I heard as much discussion about the narrative that was being set forth, by either side, by the way. Both sides put it forth. Don't get me wrong on that. But the narrative, I heard more talk about the narrative. And then when the narrative didn't quite add up, we came up with a new term. Now we call it fake news. You remember when Romney was running four years prior? When Romney ran, Harry Reid made a statement that he probably wasn't even filing taxes. Here's this rich guy. He doesn't even file taxes, while the rest of the common people have to pay for it. Absolute lie. Absolute lie. Later, he was asked about it years later, and just with a smirk, he said, well, it worked, didn't it? Didn't matter that it was a lie. Until you came across a guy by the name of Donald Trump, call him out on it. Wouldn't wither and die under such an accusation. And he came up with a new term. Whether he coined it or not, I don't know what it is, but you know what it is now, right? Fake news. Now everything is fake news. It's not all necessarily fake news, but he calls it that if he doesn't like it. And that's where that's at, as he controls his side of the narrative now. The one advantage to all of this, did you, did you, you know, the one thing I like about where this all went, we're done with, it seems like, one, fa- one word that is faded is everything's a gate, right? Everything was a gate. Since Watergate on, anything, little thing, it became a gate. It became something gate, something gate. We had with Tom Brady, deflate gate. Well, now it's all about fake news. So we at least changed the language a little bit there to not change everything at gate, and we've got some fresh stuff to work with. So anyways, I held to this reality. Whoever controls the the narrative controls the outcome. I felt so good about myself until about two weeks ago. And it hit me two weeks ago that this whole concept of controlling the narrative is another one of those things that kids know intuitively since they're little. The first one that I noticed years ago was all kids have a moral perspective. Right? You give Johnny five pieces of candy and you give his brother Billy one piece of candy and Billy immediately says it's not fair. There's a moral injustice. They, they get it. They have a sense of what's right and wrong. From the time that they're little... But now I have to add this second thing into it. Because two weeks ago, I'm on the bus, I'm subbing in because they've been short on drivers, and I'm going to be taking kids home. I have not even gotten outside of town, and there's a little kid on my bus who I've never seen on it before, has come with their slip of paper, said they're going to some place, okay, I'm going to drop them off. Before we even get out of town... This little kid, it's a little girl, she comes up to me and she claims that some boy back there is hitting her and the girl sitting with her. So I get up and you can't just let kids hit each other on the bus. So I go go back there and I see this kid pinned against the window with these two girls right there. And I'm very quickly aware this kid's in the tough spot. All right, he is in a difficult situation right here. And I've done this enough to know that even though they're cute little girls, they're not all sweetness and innocence. 
So I said something that I thought was a little bit humorous, basically diffused the situation without ever trying to bring something heavy down upon that boy, and at the same time communicating, communicating to the girl, I was hoping is, don't come back up here and tell me this little story. See, because what has never happened in all of my bus driving days, in all the years I worked with youth, in all of the time that I've been engaged with kids, you know, I have never once had a kid come up to me and say, I was irritating this person. I was irritating him. I was spitting on him. I was calling him names, and he hit me. It's never happened. Ever. It always starts with, as that little girl came up to the front, he's hitting us. It always starts there. What was she doing? She was controlling the narrative, wasn't she? I'm going to tell my story right now in the way I want to tell it, and then that will get you on my side and force you to do something with this little boy who I'm not telling you that the two of us are really irritating him. And he is totally stuck and has nowhere to go. Wow. Eight years ago, I was so smart, only to find out two weeks ago that little grade schoolers get this principle. And as I thought about it, Haven't we all been doing this our entire life? Controlling the narrative? We picked up on it in grade school. And I mean, there's the classic thing, of course, when you don't have your homework, you know, a dog ate my homework. We've all heard that. And there are ways in which we control the narrative. If you think about it, without the use of words, some of it has to do with words, but some of it's not. See a young boy driving through town, got this big subwoofers that you can hear them from three blocks away. He's got pipes that you can hear from five blocks away. This thing is in a lift kit. Well, that guy's creating narrative about who he is and just how cool he really is. Right? He's creating a storyline with his, with his vehicle. Job applications. Why do we get references on job applications? Because we know that you give the person complete control of the narrative, they're perfect every time. You ask me to tell you my life story, I guarantee you there's things I'm leaving out, you'll never hear it. Right? I don't think I want you to know that part of the narrative. And you'd be the same way with me. So we got to get references and background checks to see if it adds up with the narrative that somebody's creating when they apply for a job. How we dress, Right? That's a, that's a nonverbal way of, of, of controlling a narrative. There are some people, they're going to be dressed for Sunday morning, and they are going to be dressed up, and, and the tie will be on, and, and coats, and the whole bit. It's not bad. But they're making a statement. They're creating a narrative about what they think needs to happen when people come to church. They're giving you their story. But you know there's some people who come from another perspective. They intentionally don't wear a tie. And they don't dress up. And they come casual. And you talk to them and they will say, I've played that game before. And I am not playing that game anymore. 
because I know when I dress in that way. My point is to give this impression that we're the perfect Christian family and we are not. So I'm not playing the game anymore. So they're speaking a different narrative. Are they not? We created a little narrative here after Christmas. See, after Christmas, we, it was, a, it was a, a pretty significant winter going in through December. And we had piles of snow as high as the brickwork all the way around the building. When it came time to take down the Christmas trees, we said, hmm, you know what? It's real wintry out there, and that can be somewhat oppressive. Let's keep it a nice, pleasant wintry feel by keeping the trees on, take anything related to Christmas off of them, and we'll bring winter in in a pleasant way and acknowledging that it's winter. But guess what? It's time to change the narrative, isn't it? Winter is losing its grasp. These will be gone by next week. They're gone because the narrative needs to change now. We've all been doing it. And that's the premise to everything that we're going to consider for the rest of our time now. The premise of our time in the Word today is this. We have all spent a lifetime controlling our narratives. We have all spent a lifetime controlling our narratives. Father, we open your Word. We open your word, and you may have some things to say to us, Lord. Some things to say that are revealing and maybe not pleasant to hear. By the presence of your spirit, I pray that we will be receptive to that which you would speak to us individually, Father. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We return to the book of Hebrews today. We're in chapter 4, two verses that we're going to look at. Hebrews chapter 4 beginning in verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. As we've been looking, moving our way through the book of Hebrews, we're looking at chapters 3 and 4, and we're saying they hang together very clearly as a, as a unit, as a, as a continuation of thought. And we tried to illustrate it last week by creating this braided rope. And what we indicated was there's three things. They just keep flowing throughout these two chapters. Three things. Number one, the red rope represents a historical account of Moses. The reason we used red, if you were with us last week, so you understand, is before they were um, before they were ejected from Egypt by God's delivering hand, they had to put blood on the doorposts on the Passover, and so that represents the historical account of Moses leading the people out of captivity. That's the red cord. The royal blue cord refers to Psalm 95, which also is just braided into these two chapters. Psalm 95, which makes comment upon that historical event. David wrote it, Israel's greatest king. He wrote it a few hundred years after the event had actually happened. And one of the things that he points out in his psalm is that in unbelief, the people rejected what God was doing. And they were left, literally, under the own judgment which they chose, 
They were left to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until those who rejected God in unbelief, his promise that he was giving them the land, until they had all died off. And so that's the royal blue cord as David's psalm reflects upon that and, and calls us to not fall into that same trap. And what we pointed out was the yellow cord then is the sign of caution. When we're going to mark something as to be careful here, we will mark it in yellow. And that's why it has a yellow cord. And braided again into these passages that just keep doing this with each other. We saw it begins with this statement. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest. So that's where it starts. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus begins with this call to consider him. But then there are three cautionary statements. Chapter 3, verse 12, Beware, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to come short of it. Chapter 4, Verse 11, we looked at last week. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. That example of disobedience that we saw among the people who lived out the red cord and who David commented on with the royal blue cord, says don't fall into that same disobedience. So this little illustration here is to show us how chapters 3 and 4, perhaps visually, a way of showing us how they're laid out. And then, then we uh, need to explain a little something about verses 12 and 13. Because this flow that is going on, this flow that is happening there, I found myself in looking at this, I'd get to 12 and 13 and go, this just kind of jumps out at you. This just kind of doesn't seem to relate to everything else. Chapter, verses uh, 12 and 13 of chapter 4, here's how I'm viewing it. Here I actually have just printed off a copy of the text, okay? They're just kind of hung there towards the end of this passage. They just, just, everything else is flowing and going back and forth and uh, we just hang this right on there. Huh. And I I, I had a hard time trying to figure out, how does this fit in? But when we take a look at them and what they say, there's some interesting things that happen. So, Dave, if you would, can can we get to that first thing of the PowerPoint? If we can. First, this is just purely an interesting observation. As I was looking at it in the original language, Two verses, I don't think I've ever seen such a concentration of words that give us direct English words inside of two verses. Here is no less than ten English words that we have that can all be found in this, these two verses. All right? Zoology, some of it is just the root word, but the root word zoology, log, like a ship's log, Okay, Captain Marks is long. Theology, energy, psychology, pneumatic, like you have pneumatic tools. Okay, myelin, as in a myelin sheath that's uh, around your nerves. Gymnasium, trachea, and ophthalmologist. All those words are here in the Greek. Just an interesting observation. 
Okay, that's an interesting observation. But what I noticed is something that does not show up in the English translation. And I want to be careful. I don't want to get us too deep into the woods. But something that doesn't show up that I think we have to understand it in order to grasp what, these, what is going on here with these, uh, these particular words. Now, what we have here is this is the Greek. Now the, now, the Greek letters look different than this. I don't have a font that allows me to give us the Greek letters that I could put into a PowerPoint. So these are English letters as to what the Greek would sound like. So what we have here is Okay? That is the beginning to these two verses. That's what the Greek says in the beginning to these two verses. The, these two verses end, the end of verse 13 says, pros hon hemin hologos. Interesting, huh? I've got to tell you about this word right here, energes. What's it look like? It looks like energy. It's exactly where we get our word energy from, okay? Every time I see that word in the original language, every time, all I can think of is Kevin and Deline Munsebrotten because they both work in the energy industry. That, to me, that's their word, all right? They're in the energy industry. But this is, what it, this is what it looks like. Now, do you see something? Do you notice something? There's a parallel between the beginning and the end. All right, let's see if we can point it out for you. Did I go too far? Oh, I'm sorry. That was supposed to show up in red better than that, and I apologize. I, yeah, it looks like, okay. Anyways, do you see hologos? I've cut out some of the other words. Hologos, the word of God. That's where it begins. For the word of God is... Hemin hologos, from us, the word. What are we talking about here? Okay, let me see if I want to, did I? No, we're here, okay. I skipped one screen, but we're going to just keep moving forward, okay? Here's what we're getting at. The, that passage begins with the word of God is living. Literally, it says living and energized is what it says. What I want us to see is it begins with the word of God and then the dot, 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 dot says there's all, everything else in those two verses happens. And then it ends with hemin hologos, which is from us, the word. And from us, the word, here's where it's coming from. The word of God is the word of God about us. God's word is spoken about us. And then this other part, hemin hologos, is our word as we speak to him. You got that? God's word about us, and all of those verses refer to God's word about us and what it's like, and we'll look at that. But then it ends with our word, from us the word, to him, is ultimately what it says. Okay? So what do we have? We have a dialogue. There's a dialogue, if you will, in these two verses. This little back and forth that's going to happen. In fact... The word logos and the word logos, the word of God to us and our word to him is what it says. That's right there. That's, that's log, log in there. Oh, and the word, the prefix here, dia, it means through or across. So this is words going across or through between us. That's what a dialogue is, right? So we have this dialogue. Now you can only see that by looking at the original language. And so I just wanted you to get that, that that's how that is, okay? God's word, the word of God to us, and the word of God about us, and then our word to him. Are you with me? 
a little dialogue that's found in these two verses. Okay, that being the case, let's go back to our premise. Our premise is we have all spent a lifetime controlling our narratives. And then we're confronted with Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, which describes for us a dialogue between us and God. If you want to fill in your notes, we're going to come back to the notes here now. I know that's a lot of preparation stuff, but here we are. The first thing that we notice as we look at verses 12 and 13, now begin to pull them apart and go a little further than setting up this dialogue, is that the Word of God doesn't control our narrative. It reveals it. The Word of God does not control our narrative. It reveals it. For the Word of God is living and powerful. Living. That was that zoon word. Okay, that's where it begins here. The Word of God is living. When you go to a zoo, you see live animals. The zoon, the zoo. Can you hear it in there? Okay. You go to a natural history museum, you see stuffed animals. So we call it a natural history museum. Those animals are history, I tell you. They're not living right now. But the Word of God is living, and it is energized. The Munzebraten Word. Well, in that living energy thing. By the way, you'd probably like me to define what word means here. It's the Word of God. The Word of God comes to us in many ways. The Word of God comes to us in the written Word. The Word of God came to us in the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ. The Word of God is spoken to us by His Spirit at times as He convicts us and He points us and He reveals things to us. The Word of God we're going to hear one day when we stand before Him in judgment. It is what God says in all of its dynamics and all of its forces have to be included in our understanding of what the Word of God is like in this dialogue that we have. And it says it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. You know, if somebody's going to cut into you, you want them to cut in with something that's sharp. So it's amazing to me. You know, we see uh, Carol and Ginny both had eye surgery this past week, you know. Now they're using lasers, but we had other people this week who had surgery. And they weren't using lasers. They're coming in with a scalpel. And we want the doctor to use a sharp scalpel. And we want him to what? To be accurate with the scalpel. Do we not want that? Yes, we do. I have a, a, a cousin. She lost her husband in, an, in a surgery where the surgeon accidentally nicked a main artery in his vein. And he bled out on the table. We want the surgeon to have a sharp scalpel and to be accurate with that scalpel piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow pointing out to us that these things that we would whether the immaterial part of us that we would vision soul and spirit so closely connected joints and marrow body parts that God's ability with God's scalpel if you will is able to divide cut rightly right between them it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So that it begins to reveal not only what we think, but the motivations and the intentions behind what we think. And he does it accurately. 
And there is no creature hidden from his sight. It's something that's going to relate to all of us. There's not one who will ever escape the fact that we will give an answer to God at some point. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him. The word, the word therefore, uh, being all things are naked and open to the eyes of him, uh, carries with it the idea, it's where we got the word trachea up here earlier, okay, that the way things are revealed to God, that word trachea, it comes from the same, some of the same words with which we get neck. You know what the trachea is? It's the windpipe, right? We all know what our trachea is. Right here, it's the windpipe. And the word is actually seen being used where somebody is put into a very threatening situation where their head is held back so the executioner can cut their neck. That is the kind of idea that for which this word has been used. So when we are laid bare, when we are exposed, we are exposed. And the point being, we are vulnerable. And God himself will speak truth into that setting. God himself will expose us, our thoughts and our intentions, by his word. And that word will... Again, be the written word, the incarnate word, the, the impression of the Spirit's word to us, a word of judgment at some time. And nobody's going to escape that. Just kind of, this thought is just kind of hung there. So as the writer to Hebrews says, hey, hey, beware, be diligent. Fear, because you could fall short on this thing. Make sure you're clear about what's going on. And then he says, and by the way, if you can try and fool yourself, understand this. The day is going to come when God is going to hold our heads back. And we're going to be in a very vulnerable position. And he's going to take his scalpel and he's going to dissect us in terms of not physically, but in terms of our thoughts and our intents. And he's going to lay it all bare. Wow. We spent an entire life trying to control our narrative only to find out that Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 says God's going to expose us. Somebody has said that we judge others based upon their actions, but we judge ourselves based upon our intentions. Right? I can look at what somebody else does and say, they're wrong. They shouldn't have done that. And I can get all righteously indignant. Well, at the same time, when you look at it, I consider my own life, I'm I'm trying to be a good guy. I desire to serve God. I want to put God first. I do nothing except it's for the glory of God. And we, we, we make these wonderful superlatives about ourselves and how good our intentions are. And then Hebrews 4.12 comes along and says, you know, God one day is going to pull your head back. He's going to begin to dissect you and it's going to come right down to your thoughts and your intentions. And every one of us is going to experience that. Well, we can try and fool ourselves that our intentions are all that great, but I'd like to just throw out a couple of ways in which maybe we need to think about a few things. For my own life, 
if you'll allow, just so you don't feel like I'm pointing a finger at you and somehow I picked you out of a crowd. One of the things I saw years ago is my ability to baptize my dysfunctions. To baptize my dysfunctions. I've got a wrong perspective on something and then I just bring it in and give it some Christian overtones and I think I'm doing things great. Let me tell you a few of them. Number one, I baptized, I baptized my dysfunction about what a servant's heart looks like years ago. My first ministry, it's about what ultimately took me out of the ministry. See, with, with a servant's heart, my first ministry, I didn't know where to go with the question of money. Didn't know what to do with it. You know why? Because every week we received an offering and peop- I got paid out of that offering that went forth. And I felt guilty about it all the time because I'm supposed to be a servant. I'm supposed to be helping people. So you know what that drove me to do? What it drove me to do, every time we're at a board meeting and there's a decision to be made and something needs to be done, I said, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it because it's my job because these people are giving money so I need to do this. Having no clue at all, no clue whatsoever that my perspectives on money were all askewed. I think I'm being a servant. I think that I've got the right perspective on money. That, hey, i got to be a servant here. And they're paying my salary, so i got to do everything. Clueless that God was, I was preventing people from the body of Christ from ever using their gifts and seeing the blessing of God use them. And at the same time, burning myself out. Schedules. I figured that my schedule was open to anybody. If I had an open slot on my schedule and you called me and said, hey, can we get together? I'd say, well, of course. I'd say, I have an open slot on my schedule. Not realizing that I needed to save some time to do sermon preparation to be prepared to teach Bible studies. And so the days went from early morning to late at night, and people had no clue. They had no clue that if I started a day at 8 in the morning, I was getting done at 10.30 at night, absolutely exhausted, and I started the next day and did it the same way. They had no idea. Because I had baptized my dysfunction. Fixing people. Somebody came to me. Right? They came to me, I'm a servant, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, and I got the gospel, and I need to fix them. They've got a problem, I need to fix them. That's my responsibility, and when I couldn't fix them, I had this boatload of guilt that went with it. Until I realized, God's going to work in their lives too. Like he's working in mine, I, I'm not responsible to fix them. So we, bat- we can baptize our dysfunctions, and we feel real good, and here we got crazy ideas and we've just called them Christian. And they're not. It's not how God would have us think. What about righteous indignation? I'm not real thrilled about the possibilities that exist when I think about my own righteous indignation. The Bible says the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. And there are times when I feel like I'm so righteously indignant that this person or that person or this group or that group, they are so absolutely wrong and it moves me to a place of anger and I become unkind and I lack grace and I can become vindictive in my righteous indignation because I'm standing for the glory of God. I'm not saying we don't stand for the glory of God. Don't get me wrong. I'm saying the word of God one day is going to cut to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. 
And some of this stuff over which we have been so righteously indignant, righteously indignant, God's going to say, you're intense and your thoughts were not pleasing to me. And boy, we just thought we were spot on because we're caught up in ourselves. I'm not so sure that I've come to the place yet. Maybe some of you have. I can't say I've come to the place yet that every single thing that I do is only 100% purely for the glory of God. I would like it to be there. I don't think I'm there yet. Do you know how I know? you know how I know? Because if you wound me, in my things that I'm saying, this is only for God's glory, you wound me, and it hurts. And I can get angry, and I want to retaliate, rather than just step back and say, Lord, it's for your honor and glory. It's okay. It's okay. Thoughts and intentions, God's going to examine me on that one day. He's going to hold my neck back, and he's going to use his word, and, and he's going to do a exploratory surgery on where my heart has been all these years. I hope some of it doesn't burn up as wood, hay, and stubble, and there's a little bit of some precious metals and some gold and silver. I recall speaking with somebody one time who they believed that their, the necessity that was before them in order to get into heaven, you can't, here was their statement, you can't get into heaven with sin on your soul, so you have to confess every sin. And I asked them, so are you saying to me that you've confessed every sin in your life? And their answer was, as far as I know, I have. Wow. Really? I'm quite frightened of what God will reveal to me one day. When he says, do you realize this whole body of sin, you never even saw it as sin? Or maybe it's just that fleeting thought that comes and goes, and I don't even remember that I had it. And he says, oh, by the way, here, cuts that scalp. Let's open that up. Oh, I really was hateful towards that person. I really was unkind. Even if only in my thoughts, Jesus said, you know, you hate somebody, you're a murderer. And that was me. I could not begin to believe that I have confessed 100% of the sins I have ever committed because I don't even yet know what they are. But God's going to reveal them to me one day. So the Word of God doesn't control our narrative. This thing we've been working on all our lives, it doesn't control it, but it reveals it. And once our narrative has been revealed there might not be a lot left to say. Back to these verses. Notice, they're mostly about God's word to us. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's what we're talking about. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him. He's the one who's going to look at it all real clear. He's going to reveal the real narrative about our lives. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him. And then the last few words say, to whom... We must give account. That is our word to him. 
Picture this, right? Picture this. God has spiritually opened us up completely. He's revealed everything about us that does not measure up to his standards. And then he says, now what have you got to say for yourself? What are we going to say, friends? I just find it interesting at the end of that verse, it just says, last little thing, take down. by the way, we have to answer for all of this. Wow. It doesn't go on to say all the great stuff we're going to be able to claim about ourselves. It just says, we give an answer for this one day. Wow. Once I've been revealed, once the less than holy and pure intentions of my heart have been revealed, what do I say to a holy God who has exposed me completely? What do I say? What will we say? And that's the question I'm leaving you with today. What are you going to say? What are we going to do when God reveals completely who we are? And then it's our turn to pick up our side of the dialogue. I'd like you to think about that for this week, number one. And number two, I would really like you to come back next week because we're not done. And next week won't feel so dark, I promise. But the Word of God is. The Word of God is living and powerful. And it's a discerner of our thoughts and intents. And we're going to have to answer for that. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, it, uh, any more than we like to go under the surgeon's scalpel to have them cut on us in order to help bring healing into our lives. Lord, I can't say that the idea of having you open me up with the scalpel of your word to reveal what I'm really like and where the sickness and disease really is. Lord, I can't say that I look forward to that or want it on a daily basis, Lord. But I know I need it. And I'm guessing, Father, there's many here today who would say the same thing. And Lord, we can fool ourselves. We can fool ourselves about how committed we are to you and how, how 100% pure our motives are. We can fool ourselves in all these things, Father. And then when we're confronted with your word, I believe we're going to find out that we had a long way to go, Lord. May we be re- receptive to what your spirit is saying to us. Is the, the word of the spirit, your word, Lord, ministers to each one of us and is, and is challenging us about our thoughts and our intents, about the purity of the motives we claim, Lord that will each listen for your still small voice as you prompt us as to what to do with this reality you are revealing, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.